In this episode of Flying Smarter, I start by looking at why flight deck doors are often open during boarding. Then, we're sharing some never-before-heard clips from Flying Smarter's 2022 guests. Welcome to episode 34 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. This is going to be an interesting and unique episode. I still have a question to answer at the beginning and a fun fact as well, but the main segment takes on a special format. I'll talk a bit more about the background and how it came about later, but it's essentially like a bonus content and a deleted scenes kind of thing. Now, let's get started. Why is the flight deck door open during boarding? If you board through the front of an aircraft, you may have noticed that you can often catch a glimpse of the cockpit through the open flight deck door. Now in today's post 9-11 era, flight deck doors are generally required to stay closed while an aircraft is airborne, with some obvious exceptions such as when pilots need to use the lavatory or when meals are being delivered. During boarding though, you'll often find that the cockpit door is open, particularly in North America and Europe. Before departure, there are many people who need to get in and out of the flight deck. For example, one of the pilots, usually the first officer, will leave the cockpit to conduct a walk-around check of the aircraft on the tarmac. If you're able to see your plane from the terminal window, you might be able to spot one of your pilots wearing a reflective vest and doing this walk-around before your flight. And then there are people who aren't pilots who need access to the flight deck as well. Maintenance technicians or engineers may need to check in with or converse with the pilots, especially if there's a maintenance issue. Flight attendants and gate agents might have to speak to the pilots to provide updates on passenger issues, passenger counts, or problems that arise during boarding. Other ground crew and airline staff might have to see the pilots in regards to fueling, weight and balance, or other operational issues. Now, the exact procedures and processes vary between countries, airlines, and flights, but the idea is that there's a lot that goes on in the flight deck before the flight. You'll often also find that at the end of the flight, once some of the post-flight procedures are completed, the cockpit door might be open and one of the pilots might come out to thank passengers for flying with the airline. The deplaning process tends to be less busy in the flight deck than boarding, which allows pilots the time to step out to talk to passengers. For the same reason, the end of the flight is a time to ask to visit the flight deck if you're ever interested in doing so. Pilots are generally willing to allow people to pop their heads in to take a look once the cockpit door has been opened after a flight. Did you know that there are some interesting and funny airport codes out there? The last episode of Flying Smarter was all about airport codes, and I have some interesting ones for you. There's WOW for Willow Airport in Alaska, OMG for Omega Airport in Namibia, PEE for Russia's Perm International Airport, and POO for Pozos de Caldas Airport in Brazil, and FUK for Fukuoka Airport in Japan. It's harder to get fun ones with the four-letter ICAO codes because as you may remember, the first two letters indicate the location. But there are still some ones out there, like PAIN for McKinley National Park Airport in Alaska, and SCAR for Chacaluda Air International Airport in Chile. For today's main segment, I'm doing something a little bit different by sharing some previously unaired clips from my guests. There's two factors behind this episode. 
Firstly, I've been inviting my guests to share some insights, stories, or tips that are unrelated to the main topic of our conversation. The guests on this show all have lots of valuable things to share about air travel in general, whether it be from their travel experience or from their time working in the industry. So although I center our chats around a main topic, I've wanted to capture some of the wisdom that they have on other topics as well. And so I've been collecting these thoughts from my guests and I plan on sharing them in episodes like these or possibly as a recap at the end of the year. Now the second origin of this episode is the fact that each guest episode has to be edited to some extent or another, and this often involves shortening the interview to make sure that all of our episodes roughly end up being the same length. This means that we are sometimes left with additional content that is still valuable, but had to be cut for time, in the same way that movies and TV shows will end up with deleted scenes. So in today's episode, I want to share some previously unaired clips from last year. As you may know, we restarted publishing episodes in the fall of 2022 after a hiatus, and what I have to share with you today is from my first three guests of 2022. Greg Crino is a pilot with a major U.S. airline. He is also a part-time lawyer and a serving member of the United States Air Force Reserve and was formerly a fighter pilot with the Air Force. He joined me in episode 18 to talk about pilot training, talking about everything from his military flight training experience to what pilots go through when they first arrive at a major airline to ongoing training for airline pilots. Greg had a story to tell about something that happened while he was flying over the Pacific Ocean, and it comes with some good advice afterwards. Here's the clip from our conversation. So, yeah, it was a flight from Los Angeles to Hawaii, and we were about an hour and a half out of Los Angeles over the Pacific Ocean heading to Hawaii. And that's when we got the first um, chime. We have a cockpit chime when the flight attendants tell us, they're trying to get a, get our attention. So we have like a little chime and then we pick up the telephone in the cockpit and we can talk to the flight attendants. We got this first chime and they said that there was a woman who was feeling ill and you know, our reaction is, well, okay, let us know if there's anything you need, because there's really not much we're going to do. We're not going to turn around. We're not going to turn around and, and bring 180 passengers back to Los Angeles because somebody might have, you know, have bad gas, you know, so you have to wait for these things to play out. Well, about 10 minutes later, they said, Oh, she's now unconscious. And that's when we started going, okay, now this is getting more serious. We need to uh, get on what's called MedLink. And that's where we have this, um, we have this way of communicating with people on the ground via text. We have like these onboard computers where we can, we can type messages to, to our doctors on the ground and then we can, give symptoms to them and tell them, you know, what's going on. And they can give us recommendations as to whether we turn back to Los Angeles or whether we keep going. So it took us a little while to actually know that she was having a heart attack. And we were probably about now almost two hours outside of LA. And we're just prior to halfway to Hawaii. So we actually did have to turn around, but that takes a while when you're over the ocean, we're not under direct uh, radio contact with an air traffic control. It's a lot of it's procedural, it's procedural control. We have to get on a separate radio and talk to an office who then talks to air traffic control, and then we can get permission to turn around. So it takes a while to do that. We eventually did. We're uh, turned back around. We went back to San Francisco and we had people in the back. We eventually had some nurses on board that were passengers that volunteered to help. Thank God. 
and they were giving her CPR and we had the medical kit out and they were giving her the adrenaline shots or what are they called? EpiPen. I don't know what they're called. Epinephrine. I'm, I'm, I'm using all the wrong terms, but they're giving her some shot in her leg to, you know, to help bring back her, her heart, you know, give her you know, some, uh, bring, bring her back, I guess. And they were not able to do that. And so we actually landed and we went to San Francisco as fast as we, as we possibly could. And they brought on the paramedics to get her off the airplane. Um, and then they brought on the police officers to do, I guess, a little investigation just to make sure it wasn't a murder or whatever. You know, it's just all procedures that we have to go through. And of course, after 30 seconds, the cops uh, left the airplane and then we let the passengers off and had to figure out what to do with everybody at that point. So in that long story, my advice is don't fly if you have some major health condition. I guess this poor woman had, she had had open heart surgery like nine days before the flight and her doctor cleared her to fly like on that ninth day. Uh, but she asked, yeah, she sadly had a heart attack. Um, and if she had had a heart attack 30 minutes before, we probably could have landed in LA and, and helped her. Um, or three hours later, we probably could have landed in Hawaii and helped her. But it was just at that wrong time where you know we're over the middle of the ocean and we can't just turn around and land right away so just take that into consideration if you have some health issue don't fly over the pacific or the atlantic even if your doctor says it's okay <laughs> give it give it a lot of time if you're over the continental united states it's a little bit different because we can land within 30 minutes but over the ocean it's going to be a few hours mm -hmm. wow that's yeah. that's quite the story um and yeah, like, like you said, right. Like if it's, if you're just flying across the country, like it's not as big of a deal. Right. But if you're, if you're in the middle of nowhere right there. Yeah. yeah so take, mm -hmm. take heed, like definitely if you're, if you have some sort of um, health problem, like take it seriously, make sure your meds are with you, make sure you're flying on a route that, you know, if something does happen to you, we can, we can take care of you pretty quickly. But that's the first thing that we're going to do is if there is some sort of health problem on board, we're going to probably delay for a bit to make sure it's actually serious because we know it's a business. We can't just, we, we can't land an airplane with hundreds of people. And then on, on just some small things, we've had people who've just, like I said, they just had too much to drink the night before. It's like, okay, well, you can go back and throw up and you'll feel better. We're not going to divert the airplane <laughs> and cost millions of dollars for that. Um, so there'll be a delay there. Um, and you know, uh, other things are, we're going to, we're going to ask for help on board. So we'll ask for doctors or nurses or whoever. And if you are a person who has a medical credential, carry your ID with you. If you do have nothing on you, our flight attendants are not just going to trust that you're qualified. And we've had right. flight attendants get in, in arguments with people because, you know, the person claimed that they were a doctor, but they had no credentials. And it's like, we can't just let you, you know, take care of this person. You could just be uh, you know, Joe blow on the street, you know, so carrier credentials. Um, you know, and that's probably the big stuff that I have the big medical advice, I would say. Greg also shared a tip for packing. Not only do pilots fly a lot, but they sometimes face unexpected delays or changes or have to spend time on reserve, meaning that they are on standby and can be sent to fly anywhere. Here's what Greg had to say about packing to help you travel lightly just think, think of things that are dual use as much as possible so when i fly as an airline pilot i can go anywhere in the world and last as long as possible and all of my bags are carry-on 
Now, granted, it's going to be different if you, you know, you have different needs in certain parts of the world, you know, big heavy coats and things like that. But I have basically, I have a pair of shoes that will work whether I'm wearing shorts or slacks or whatever, and they can smash down nice and easy in my, my bag. Um, I have, you know, dual use uh, type of pants. They can be kind of slacks or they can be kind of walking pants. So just find as much dual use stuff as you possibly can. Um, and, you know, you can make your packing just, you know, that, that much easier. Um, and if you can carry your stuff on, uh, the better off you're going to be for things like standby. But yeah, I'd say just create as many dual use or, or pack as much dual use items as you can. Uh, like I said, shoes are the big ones. Uh, if you can have one nice jacket, not three, uh, if you can have one pair of pants, um, you know, other than that, you just need some socks and underwear, but if you can you know, pack, pack just a, you know, one of everything that would be, that makes life a lot easier and hotels do laundry. So you don't have to pack for 10 days. I pack for no more than five days. In episode 20, pet travel expert and former flight attendant Gail Martz joined me to talk about flying with pets. During the 1980s and 1990s, she worked tirelessly to change airline policies to allow pets to travel in the passenger cabin, playing a pivotal role in bringing about how pets fly today. The next clip got cut for time, but I think is a great reminder for those of us who are nervous about flying. I asked Gail about how safe it is for pets to fly. Afterwards, though, I realized that the answer really applies to flight safety in general. Here's what she had to say. Well, it's all about safety. Having worked in the airline industry, the main reason that a flight attendant, the pilots, anyone is there, it's all about safety. I mean, you have to learn and know everything there is to know about safety. Because you have to deal with everything that could happen and might happen, and it's all about safety. Now, the safest thing you could do in your life is get on a plane. It really is. So we look at the statistics of what happens with the airlines. It's nothing. When I hear someone is afraid of flying, then I can work with them. I used to work on people that had a fear of flying. And, you know, so I would deal with the psychiatrists and the people and all of that. But the safest thing you will ever do in your life is get on a plane because it is safe. But you want to learn how you can be safe with your pet, what to do, and be prepared. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, it's interesting you mentioned that because when whenever people are, you know, express a fear of flying to me, I, you, one of my go-tos is, you're right, it is one of the safest things to do in the world. And, you know, people aren't worried about their, their car ride to the airport or their taxi ride or their train ride to uh. the airport, but it's much more dangerous than, than the flight itself, right? But you, you hit the nail on the head and it's very interesting that you mentioned that, um, that, uh, that for, for both pets and humans, flying is extremely, extremely safe. Oh, it's the safest thing you could ever do. Now, there's this one word. It's called fear. <laughs> it's fear of flying or fear of this. And that's false expectations appearing real. So people, I can't tell you how many people that I have dealt with and helped. This is from, you know, even when I had started doing this job with the airlines 
it's their false expectations appearing real because all they do is they get on the plane, they think the plane's going to crash. I mean, this is false. It's the safest thing you can do, but a fear is a fear and, you know, people need to work on that. You know, whatever the fear that somebody might have is, you know, some people fear going to a dentist. That's more understandable, right? (laughs) For more about fear of flying, check out episode 25, which is all about dealing with the fear of flying in yourself and in others. It is the last episode of 2022, but unfortunately, I don't have any additional clips from that episode here, but go check it out for more on fear of flying if you haven't done so already. My guest for that episode was therapist and retired airline captain Tom Bunn, and he provides tons of valuable insights. At the very end of my chat with Gail, I asked her if there's anything else she'd like to share when it comes to flying with pets. She spoke on how information about flying is so readily available at our fingertips these days and shared a few overarching pieces of advice on flying with pets. I think we just want to make sure that the people are aware and it's so easy to be aware now because you have all of the right in front of you on your computers, everything. Do you have a question? Ask Siri, ask Alexa, ask anybody and put it in and you'll get an answer. So anything that somebody needs to know and wants to know, they can find online. That's what we can do now that wasn't available way back, you know, when I had started in the pioneer uh, stages of pet travel. Really, it was very pioneer uh, pet travel. So here we are now, and there's so many forms and so many different ways, and talking about being on a plane. So it's just talk with your pet train your pet, you know, to learn because your pet will listen to you. They want to be with you and take the time, plan ahead and document everything so you know what you're doing. Now, as you know, I'm all about being prepared and doing your research before you fly. And that's really one of the reasons that Flying Smarter exists. There are so many rules and procedures around flying already, and it can get even more complicated when you're doing something additional like bringing pets children, sporting equipment, or if you require special assistance. These are all topics that I'd like to look into more down the line on the podcast. Michael Hilliard is a conflict journalist with extensive air travel experience all around the world. He's traveled to many uncommon destinations that are hard to access, having reported from places like Iran, Belarus, and Russia. He joined me in episode 22 to talk about his fascinating air travel experiences. Now, of course, I talked a lot with Michael about his travels. When it came to recording something for the future, I didn't have anything in particular that I wanted to ask him, so I left it open. I'm not sure how to best introduce this clip for Michael, but I have to say that I loved it. I'm I'm usually a pretty reasonable guy, and I'm I'm not a dictator, but if I was a dictator, I had complete control of the world, I would make mandatory classes for people to actually use airport etiquette. And the big one for me is the baggage carousel. I nothing boils my blood faster than people who stand right against the carousel and just look straight down and watch their bag, watch every bag go past one by one. You know, why can people not just stand two meters back and then when they see their bag, take a step forward, grab your bag, chuck it on the trolley, you know, and stay there until you see another bag? You know, that would be the only thing I do is dictate. If I was given all the power in the world, I would make that a law and then I would 
surrender the power directly afterwards. Uh, and it's, you know, I used to think, okay, well, this is just an Australian thing. Uh, and then everyone in Europe does it. And I go, well, maybe it's a, you know, it's a Western thing. Nope. Everywhere in the world does it and everywhere in the world it annoys me. So my, if you want to, you know, be a, a, you know, really good traveler, like you're, you know, it's really interesting sort of going a bit on this, you know, when you do the flight from Sydney to Melbourne in Australia, the 6am version of that flight is all businessmen. They're mostly wearing suits. They are mostly just carrying, you know, uh, to carry on luggage. They get in, they get out. They're so quick at the desk. They've done this a hundred times. They all stand back from the baggage carousel. The 11am flight is so full of families who all use these same problems. So, you know, I would recommend take a 6am commuter flight, you know, look at how those guys behave on planes. And that's how you should run, you know, how you should do what you do. You know, have your laptop out when you go through stuff, you know, get your visas in order before you get through it, get there and stand back from the carousel and grab your bags as you need them. Uh, it's, you do that, not only you have the respect of every other traveler in the room, uh, but you also, you know, you get out of the airport exactly the same time uh, that you would have anyway. I have to say that I'm with Michael on this one. It's not particularly efficient if everyone crowds right up against the baggage carousel, forcing other people to stand further back. It's harder for those in the back to see, and then when they have to get a bag, they have to squeeze between the people pressed up against the carousel and to grab their bag. Now if everyone stands back, there's a bit more room for everyone, and more people can have a quote-unquote front row position at the baggage carousel. It's like when you're talking in a circle of people and want to make room for people to join in, everyone backs up a bit so that the circle gets bigger and more people can fit. If the circle around the baggage claim is bigger, there's room for more people. Now in an ideal world, if everyone was on the same page about this, I think that the baggage claim would be a more efficient place. Now to end off, here's a great tip from Michael. You've probably heard me mention it too before, but here's proof that I'm not the only one encouraging this. If you are polite to a, a you know, gate person, particularly if you look a bit disheveled, like not disheveled, but you look tired, um, not only will A, she could be the person who's on your flight who will happily bring you an extra, you know, vodka just to ease your pain. Um, but they'll like quite often upgrade you or give you a good seat or, you know, you know, nine times out of 10, I don't buy a, a specific seat because, you know, talk, if you just talk politely with, you know, the woman at the, ch- at the checking counter, she'll probably just give it to you. Like, you know, oh, yeah, there's a couple of seats left on this flight. No problem. Um, yeah, it's, it really is shocking how much you can get away with if you're just polite ask them how the day is and, uh, you know, actually listen to them. I want to say a big thank you to Greg, Gail, and Michael for joining me last year and for sharing their wisdom with all of us. Greg is the host of a fantastic podcast called The Greg Crino Show, where he talks with experts on a variety of interesting topics in each episode. Gail is the creator of The Sherpa Bag and the author of two books, and Michael hosts one of my favorite podcasts, The Red Line, which brings together three guests to examine a geopolitics topic in each episode. And of course, you can find them all online and on social media as well, and I'll include links to all those in the episode description. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. Be sure to follow or subscribe to Flying Smarter wherever you get your podcasts so that you get future new episodes right when they're released. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.